Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. One. Welcome back to another episode of Believe in the Press Row. Jonah Siegel here on a gloomy Saturday morning out in Seattle. Uh, very, very pleased to join, be joined with one of the first guests I ever had in the press row way back at the uh, College of Sports Media Studios downtown Toronto. He is now, uh, I'm going to call it the hockey insider, the hockey guru of Rogers Sportsnet, former GM and president of many teams, Brian Burke. Brian, how are you? Good, John. How are you? Great. I guess I should also say he's also author of Burke's Law. Uh, unbelievable read slash listen, great new book, uh, released a couple weeks ago. Is that right, Brian? Yes, October 12th. And uh, how's the book release going so far? Well, it's all virtual and media stuff, no tour, which I was looking forward to, but uh, it's going great. You know, touch wood, it's flying off the shelves. So here's uh, one observation, and, and listen, like there's a, I don't know what the corona has done. Maybe it's given people more time. But there certainly is a lot more, uh, I'm going to call interesting sports books out there right now than at any other time that I can remember. They, they kind of dribble all over the time, but there's like five or six books. Uh, kudos to you because, listen, like you're a great storyteller. Um, you're a lawyer by training. Uh, so I imagine you know how to write, but you picked a, a wicked uh, partner to help write the book and help tell your story. And to me, that was one of the most uh, enjoyable parts of the book. And that Stephen Brunt uh, is, is Canada's greatest storyteller on the, on the sports media side. When, when they show those videos and he narrates his work, uh, the hair on your arm stands up. What was it like working with Stephen? Well, I was just going to say the book came out really well. My goal was to make people feel like they were in the room with me or on the draft floor with me. And that's why there's so much detail on like the trade for the, the trades for the Sedins, the Chris Pronger deal, all that details make someone feel like they're sitting next to me at the draft table. And uh, Stephen Brunt's a great writer. That's why I chose him. Uh, working with him was great because I, I am a good storyteller, but he polished it all up and, and uh, did some nice foreshadowing and, you know, dropped hints of what was to come. Just, it was very professionally done. I'm very happy with the job Stephen did. Not only did he do a good job polishing, but he polished it in Brian Burke's way. He didn't turn it into his own words. It is 100% authentic. Um, F-bombs, energy. Uh, you can tell it's your book. You can tell it's your story. He has not changed it in any way. No, I agree. It's my voice. And, and for people who aren't aware, it's not a kid's book. There is a lot of adult language in there. And I, one guy said, you, you shouldn't have used so many F-bombs. I said, I'm going verbatim. Basically, we took some out, actually. I took out a few. That, uh, but that's how we talk in our industry. And it's no different when I've gone overseas and visited Canadian soldiers overseas. They talk just like we do. There's not much, well, there's not much conversation takes place that you could have in front of a kid. So, uh, no, I'm really happy with it. It is my voice. And they are my stories. Um, and I'm, it was fun doing it. It makes you reflect on the things you did well in your life and the things you didn't do well in your life. And uh, I think that's useful for a human being to do that once in a while. So four things struck out to me in the book. 
consistently throughout the whole thing. I'll, I'll ask you to comment on them. Um, one is critical to me and really important, um, impact and importance of family. Uh, it's evident in the book, both your parents didn't know you had that many siblings, uh, two different groups of kids uh, moving around, but you take responsibility for some things, but but the the impact and importance on family is evident, and uh, that's refreshing. Not a lot of people talk about it. Uh, you clearly live it, and uh, I really found that impactful. Well, I'm glad a lot of people have commented on that after they read the book. They said they didn't realize I was from such a big family, ten kids, and they didn't realize strict Irish Catholic upbringing reading hour, our family, we read together as a group all in the living room after dinner for an hour, no homework, uh, just books from the library. And um, we had a new vocabulary word every night. One, one kid had to bring a vocabulary word to the table, say it, repeat it, spell it, use it in a sentence. So we all got pretty good vocabularies. Um, anyway, uh, and discuss the importance of charitable work. Like my mom was a nurse. You can't donate blood till you're 18 in most states, but in most states with a parent's signature, you can donate at 16. Well, we all, as soon as we turned 16, my mom started dragging us along to the blood bank. I don't know how many gallons of blood I've donated in my life, but it's a lot. And to the point where I went to give blood one time and they couldn't even find a vein that worked. They had to do it on the back of my forearm. So I was proud of that too, you know? Yeah. And the nurse asked me, she said, are you a drug user? I said, I laughed. I've never taken any kind of drug in my life. Never even gotten high. I said, no, that's from blood donations. She went both arms and couldn't find a vein. <laughs> so it was, we were taught that way. We were brought up that way. And I've, I've brought my kids up the same way. And I think family is critical. And I'm very proud of my kids. And I love them a lot. So the second thing that's really impactful, at least it was to me, uh, is accountability. And I think you have an interesting reputation, both in the, in the sports world and certainly in the media world, you, you call it out, you say it in the conclusion of the book, there are people that don't like you. There's people that come up to you and say, I didn't like you until I heard you today. I'll let you finish that. I'll leave that alone. But you absolutely take accountability. Um, first of all, marriages. So you talk about the first thing you say, I take full responsibility. Um, those are powerful words. The second part is you say it professionally. Um, you talk, I'm going to paraphrase, that perhaps keeping Ron Wilson on as long as you did or recognizing that you have a style that didn't match his style that probably may not have been the best fit even when you started in Toronto. You acknowledge and take accountability for the Kessel trade. And then the biggest one to me was uh, suggesting that Bob Goodenow take the PA role. But, you know, those are three pretty strong examples plus the personal ones. Uh, you hold yourself accountable and I found that really refreshing. Well, I think accountability is vanishing in our society. I think it's fashionable to blame other people for, for what goes wrong. I think it's harder and harder to look into the camera and say, I got that wrong. And to me, you, you don't really deserve to, to brag, not that you should, but you don't really deserve a claim for your success unless you're willing to admit when you fail. So I, I got fired in Toronto. The team got sold. New, new owners wanted the new guy. That's how it works, right? Same in Vancouver. But had I been in first place in both those cities, I probably would have, they would have been forced to keep me. So I can say, oh, poor me, the team got sold. Or I can say, 
the truth, which is, if we'd have been in first place when the team got sold, we would have had no choice but to keep you. And I prefer to say the latter. Yeah, the team got sold. It's certainly a factor, but I could have affected that. I think accountability is really important. I think you've got to say, I got that right. If you're going to say that and say, hey, I got that right, you better be willing to admit when you got it wrong. So, I mean, people ask me, what's the worst trade I ever made? And I said, well, how much time do we have? <laughs> I've made some horrible trades, but I made a lot more good ones and several great ones. And I kept progressing up the ladder, kept getting jobs. So I think accountability is important. So you found two of the main themes and I agree with both. And there's a couple more. So, the, so I'll, I'm going to skip to the third before I get to the last one. Uh, and that's just authenticity. As, as we talked at the beginning, there, there's no question love, hate, like, dislike, whatever, it's you. Uh, the stories you tell, the manner you tell them. I, I don't think anybody out there has any question what they're getting in any environment when they get Brian Burke. So whether it's you and me on this podcast, whether it's your kids, uh, whether it's being hired, whether it's on TV, you're authentic. And, and, and maybe people don't like it, but you are who you are, and that's important to you. Yes, it is. And let me finish the story you started, Jonah. So when I give a speech, corporations will ask me to come in and talk about team building or hard work or whatever. Um, and I'll finish speaking and someone almost inevitably, virtually every time, comes up to me and says, you know what? I couldn't stand you all these years. I thought you were the biggest jerk in the world, but you seem like you're a pretty good guy. Now, my ex-wife would say, there's a chance to make a friend. What you should do is say, thank you, you've made my day. And what I say to them is, if you think I cared what you thought yesterday, or <laughs> even less about today, I could care less. I don't care what you thought yesterday, and I certainly don't care what you think today. And I think it's very condescending to say to me, for you to say to me, you know, I never liked you, but now I guess you're okay. I didn't care then, and I don't care now. Get out of my face. Now, if I were smarter, I'd put my arm, I'd put my hand out, shake his hand or her hand and say, Thank you. I'm glad I made a friend today, but I'm not. And that person will go ten, tell that story to 10 other people who will hate me too. So that's fine. This is Brian Burke. I'm going to tell you what I think on TV. I hope you tune in. You might learn something, but if you don't like it, change the channel. Yeah. And it comes across like, I don't think anybody watches you on television or hears you on the radio and says, he's full of shit. He's making this up to sell. He's made, he's picking a point and he doesn't actually believe it. Uh, there's other people out there that do that, uh, that, that aren't authentic. I think when you say it, you believe it. And it comes across in the book as, as not only you being you, but it's critical to who you are. Yep, I agree. So the third thing, and it's not, it's not so much as a theme as it was um, impactful to me, because I actually like the person as well. And that is, I think besides parents and family, uh, it, it comes across in the book anyways, that the biggest influence on you professionally was Pat Quinn. Um, he, he is, he is weaved through the entire book. You, you refer to him numerous times. Um, obviously I knew you worked with him, uh, great stories in the book. And if you're, so I'm 48, if you're in or around my age, the stories you tell about Pat are just incredible. They're great lessons, but it is clearly evident in the book that that relationship was special uh, and he meant a lot to you and, and 
I, I, I would imagine that there's times as you go through daily life that you hear Pat in between your ears. Yeah, I, so the one, the one other theme that, that I wanted to come out in the book is the value of hard work. Like my work ethic is second to none and that's why I've been successful. And if, if you wanna look at successful people, the one common denominator they share is that they all work hard. Some are quiet, some are loud, some are really smart, some have to work really hard at it, but they all work hard. And, and I, I wanted to stress that. So we're a young professional reading the book, you know, like you, you do the math, I go to work at 5.30, I'm there at six. We have a game that night, I don't get home till midnight. Well, that's your, that's your working day. And that's a, a typical day, a non-game day, might be getting home for dinner at six o'clock, try to be home at six o'clock. So a 12 hour day, it's a standard day. Um, but to go back to Pat, I was lucky to have three mentors besides my dad. I loved my dad very much. I miss him every day, but I was lucky. I played for Lou Amarillo. I worked for Pat Quinn, worked for Gary Bettman. They all had a profound impact on me, but Pat would be the biggest influence. Lou, maybe because it was a, years 18 to 22 with Lou, he kind of turned me from a green kid into a man. But Pat was the set the tone to show me how to act professionally, how to treat people professionally. He's a wonderful teacher, very patient man, very fair. He's big on being fair. He believed in fairness. So I took that from him. I learned a lot from Pat. I was really lucky to work for him. We're going to come back to that. Um, all right. So, so those like, listen, it's a great read. The story is. There's, the, story uh, is there's the cufflinks. Yeah. Uh, that's a great story. No, no, like yeah. that is a great story. Like, listen. Pat, Pat Quinn said to me one day, he said, it's in the book. He said, what's with the shirt? So I had a buy, I wear button down collars. These are custom made uh, by a tailor and they have French cuffs. But back then I just bought the shirts off the rack and they had regular button cuffs. So he says, what, what's with the shirt? I said, what's the matter with the shirt? It's a white button down Oxford shirt. And he said, gentlemen wear cufflinks. So I found a tailor in Vancouver that day who made me custom shirts. I won't wear a dress shirt that doesn't have French cuffs and cufflinks. So that's from Pat. Yeah, as I said, it's, uh, I don't know whether it, I, I, I hear you on the theme. Uh, there is no question to me that Pat is weaved through the entire book. Yeah. Um, I listened to it on two flights to Atlanta, from Atlanta. Uh, there's no question. He, he is weaved. And, and the other guys are mentioned too. I'm not Describe just to me, it was much more impactful hearing that because I was a big Pat Quinn fan and had the chance to have a couple of beers with him a couple of different times because I sat next to him at a hotel bar. And it is clearly uh, evident in the book of the impact he had on you. Yeah, no question. So there's some areas I'd like to talk about that come up in the book. Um, some stories that you tell that are just mind numbing to me. Um, I'm not, you and I have never talked about this, but I, I went to the University of Vermont for undergrad and uh, there was a really bombastic spoiled brat who lived across the hall from me freshman year whose dad happened to own the Hartford Whalers. I covered the hockey team for the Vermont Cynic newspaper and that year the, uh, the Hartford Whalers had training camp, I believe with Pronger as a, as a first round draft pick at UVM. Yes. And, you tell a story that is just unfucking believable to me that you come into the locker room one morning and you keep finding boxes of pizza and you, you do some research and you find out that Pierre Maguire 
who's on your team, on your staff, has been having game watching TV pizza parties with the ownership group. That is just un the fact that you guys speak today. I am I'm just stunned. Well, first off, so the stories that made it into the book, I'm not out to get anyone's reputation. Like Pierre made some mistakes. We're friends now. He's on the selection committee at the Hockey Hall of Fame. But a story to make it in the book, and people should understand this. The best stories are not in the book. I could tell stories that would get people divorced, put up, you know, probably go to prison some of them. But the story to make it in the book, it wouldn't be one thing where I'm settling a score with Pierre. To make it in the book, it had to be common knowledge to the entire team and staff. So this story about Pierre and the owner and the problems that caused me, everyone knew that. Paul Homer knew that story. Tom Rono knew that story. Everyone around us knew it. Most of our players knew it. In fact, Nick Kiprios just wrote his book and he mentions an incident like that, not that particular one. But so this is no attempt to go out after anyone. I'm not, I'm not kind to a couple people in there, but again, the litmus test was, was this incident, was this knowledge common with the team? In other words, Jonah, could you have heard this story at a bar somewhere? And the answer is yes, and not for me. There are five or six people could have told the story. So Pierre and I have mended that fence, but yeah, it, it caused me a lot of heartache. But Richard Gordon was a difficult guy to work for. Really nice guy. He came to my son's funeral. Never forget that. I think he's got a big heart. But some people should not own professional sports teams, and he's one of them. Yeah, and, and, and you know, with all of these things that I'm going to talk about and with Pierre specifically and the next one as well you, you say in the book that you mend fences but that's a story that I'm listening to it on the airplane I had to back it up and listen to it again uh I, I was just shocked I, I I certainly had never heard it before um unbelievable the, the second one that that is along those same lines is Kevin Weeks uh when you had a rookie goalie who uh didn't really wasn't ready to play and, uh, and had to play. Uh, you tell that story. Yeah, so again, Weeksy, this, everyone on the bench knew this story. Everyone on our team knew the story. All the coaches knew the story, all the management people. So again, not attempting to, to sewer anybody, but Weeksy didn't like the way a game was going and pulled himself. And he just, you know, he's a young, he was a young goalie when I had him. He made mistakes. And he's gone on, he's had a really successful career as a broadcaster. We get along fine. This is not something that has simmered or festered over the years. But again, common knowledge enough that it makes it into the book. So Mark Messier after the game asked for a meeting with me and said, trade this guy or I'm going to effing kill him. I don't know what we're supposed to swear on this. So Whatever you got. Um, so again, uh, a mistake made 20 years ago by a young player, a mistake made in Hartford by a young coach 30 years ago. Um, I got a bigger heart than that. I, I, I'm big on second chances because I've had to ask for second chances from people where I've screwed stuff up. So I'm big on that. Fine with both guys, but the stories are good ones and they're true. Yeah. That's, I, I want to pull the leadership of Mark Messier most of all back then because he's not well thought of in Vancouver. They look at the Messier years as lost years and then Trevor got slighted and Pac got fired and you know, it was a dark time for everybody. So I wanted to show a side of mess that this is a guy who's acting like a captain. Let's let's hold on Vancouver because I want to get there. But take a sip of your coffee once for one second. Let me pay a bill. Uh, as you know, the election has been going on. 
Uh, we may have some degree of finality this morning, we shall see. But we are now at a period where only the NFL is around and there are lots of people that like to wager. And my friends over at betonline.ag have deals for you. Head over to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and you can sign up today. Brian, I believe you're in Toronto and if you haven't used them yet, you should definitely be talking to my friends at jiffyondemand.com. They have fast, reliable service. You got something going on at the house, cottage, what have you, that you can't do and you don't have time to do and you need it fixed quickly. Get the Jiffy On Demand app or go to jiffyondemand.com. Sign up with code SAVE, that's S-A-V-E, for $25 off your first job. I use them countless times. If I were in Toronto, I guarantee they'd be at my house now. They'd be putting away furniture, et cetera. The guys at Jiffy On Demand are the best. Uh, Brian, so... On the, on the Vancouver discussion, two other things came up. One, uh, the interesting relationship you had with Mike Keenan, uh, inheriting him as a coach, um, not a great situation. No, I, and I said in the book, you know those commercials on TV where the mayhem guys in the car distracting the woman who's driving and wrecking yep. stuff? And that's, that's Mike. Mike only, only flourishes when there's some conflict and controversy around him. And if there isn't any, he manufactures it. Um, I sleep well at night because I gave Mike a fair shot there. I, when I was hired, I expressed a great deal of cynicism that I would be able to work with Mike. Mike is, likes to be in charge or he doesn't want to be, he doesn't play in the sandbox well with other grownups. So I said, I'll give it a shot. So we had to uh, protect the guy in the expansion draft. We exposed uh, Scotty Walker. I wanted to keep him. We kept Peter Zezel, the late Peter Zezel, good guy. Um, so that was it. Started the first week of my contract. Mike tried to pull rank on me and say that he had say in player personnel. And I said, Mike, my contract says I hire and fire the coach. So if you want to play that game, call the owner. Call Seattle because Mr. McCall lived in Seattle. And he called John as soon as I left the room. So the fight was on right from day one. I said, let's try to work together. Mike went right to ownership. So um, not a not a good person to work with. Very charming side to Mike. He's very bright and good looking guy. Like he played the game. We have a, the code in hockey is that everyone's nice to everyone's family. I've got no right to be rude to Mike Keenan's wife, even if I don't like Mike. So yeah. when my kids would come in town, Mike couldn't have been nicer to him. Like he, he has a charming side to him, like most Irishmen, but uh, I just couldn't make it work with him. I did, I do have one regret about that, which I've expressed in the book. That was the year Pavel Burry held out. And I told Mike that I would give him time with the players that came back in that deal. And I said, but it would take till January probably to trade him. And then I, the way it went down, we had to hire Mark Crawford or another team was gonna do it. So I, I didn't give Mike that. And I apologized to him at the time. I said, Mike, I'm, I'm, I'm failing you in one respect. But we can't keep playing like this. The player, we're close to a mutiny. So, so you are known, and you repeat it in the book. If uh, if people were going, were asked to, and we're going to provide Brian Burke quotes, right near the top would be that when you take a job, you tell ownership there's two hands on the wheel, and they're yours. And if they can't live with that. So there's, yeah. there's, there's instances, as you just talked about, with, with Peter Zezel, with Mike Keenan. Uh, you, you tell kind of quietly, 
in a way Brian Burke can. Uh, Leafs ownership trying to interfere with with the acquisition or potential acquisition of Roberto Luongo. For the ho- the average hockey fan, how much of that meddling or interference did you have to deal with as a as a GM? Uh, very little, because in my job interview, I would say to the owners, look, if you hire me, there's two hands on the steering wheel, and they're both mine. And if I look down and there's a third hand on the steering wheel, we got a problem. Now, I said, I want to save you some time. So if you don't want to give that much autonomy, you should not hire me. I'll help you. I'll go through the list with the other guys and help you hire a guy that doesn't want that much autonomy. And so I actually had autonomy at virtually I, Hartford. I had a problem. The owner interfered constantly. Uh, Vancouver, I was pretty much left alone. They asked a lot of questions at times, but I was pretty much left alone. Anaheim, beautiful ownership, left alone. Toronto left alone. Toronto, at the end of my first year, they called in and said, can we give you more money for anything? I didn't usually have owners ask me that. <laughs> they were like, okay, we got a salary cap. We understand that, but can we get an edge by hiring more scouts? Can we and they just built a state-of-the-art practice arena, like it's still as good as anyone has in the league 20 years later, 15 years later. Uh, they had provided me with everything. And then at the meeting, I remember they said, is there anything else you need? So very little interference. And in Toronto, none until the end. And until when I asked for meet for reasons for firing, one of them was they felt that I screwed up the Roberto Luongo trade. And I said, Well, it's a good day for you to fire me. Then if I'm gonna take personnel advice from you lot and it's time to go but was was there but was there a lot of that banter behind the scenes like was there a lot of personnel advice in toronto there's very little like i got in one yelling match with dale lastman over the phone and larry tannenbaum but they were they were trying to do those back diving contracts like luongo's contract 10 and 12 year contracts that were a million dollars at the end to circumvent the cap I felt it was circumvention, so I wouldn't do them. Also, the league had promised there would be retribution for this in the new CBA, in the new collective bargaining agreement. So I said, look, we're not going to do these, and they're going to take away draft picks and do cap penalties for the teams that cheated. Well, they didn't. In fact, they gave the cheaters two get-out-of-jail-free cards with two non-compliance buyouts. And that's, but that was to get the guys back on the ice, no problem. But then to have it held back against me, you know, like – I was like, well, first off, it's cap circumvention. Like, I wouldn't do it anyway. But second, we've been promised these penalties. And third, the price for Luongo was two first-round picks, Jake Gardner and Nazem Kadri. That was the last draft uh, trade proposal I got for him. So I said, what are you talking about? It's not Plus like his salary. Yeah. So, no, I uh, very little interference most of the places I work. So you don't talk about this in the book but I'm going to go there and maybe you tell me to F off, but that's okay. You worked in an environment in Toronto where the two media heavyweights who, for lack of a better word, at least the public perception, they compete with each other. They probably hate each other corporately, but they're equal partners in this entity called Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. And you had time with them. What were those meetings like? What was it like having to deal with, two different media uh, giants, if you will, as, as owners. Well, they own Bell and Rogers own equal shares. I want to say 35% each. And I think Larry Tannenbaum owns the other 30. Correct. 
And Larry Tannenbaum is one of the finest human beings you're going to ever meet. He's a great guy. His wife, Judy, is lovely. They were a joy to work for and with. Um, the, the Bell and Rogers guys, you know, the dear Muhammad was running Rogers when I was there, and uh, George Pope was running Bell. The only time we ever saw them, they'd come to games, but they wouldn't come talk to us, right? Um, they dealt with, uh, with Richard Petty more than with me. And uh, we'd see them at a board meeting. So we have three or four board meetings here. We'd go in and we'd present hockey operations. And so you say, here's where our team is today. Here's what the Marlies are like. We think this guy's going to play that guy. Then here's our reserve list, which is guys in junior and college in Europe. So here's all the assets we have, and here's what they're doing. And they were they would ask some questions, but they were they were fine. Like we didn't interact daily with any of those people. So as you sit here today, do you think it's possible that they stay as co-owners of that entity long term? Yeah, I think they both enjoy what they're getting out of it. I mean, like like uh, Roger, Rogers is in the broadcast business. It's a Canadian company. It's Toronto based. Uh, they have a great relationship with the Leafs and with the NHL. Uh, I think the same of, of Bell. I, I can't imagine that they would be interested in getting out of the own TSN. So, uh, and they have regional rights to NHL teams across Canada. So, no, I I I could foresee this going on. So let's uh, let's talk about the stuff that people tune into me for, because that's to me that's the most one of the most interesting parts of the book. Um, four characters get mentioned in the book, one more than others. Who's and I'm I'm drawing a Saturday morning blank. Haven't had my coffee yet here. That's a media member out in Vancouver. Uh, but then there's the three-headed horseman of Steve Simmons, Larry Brooks, and Al Strachan. Um, seems to me that Pat, one of the things that Pat taught you was either the importance of or how to properly manage difficult media members. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, and, and Tony Gallagher was the guy. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry. And, um, and I, I don't, I go after those guys hard in the book because they deserve it. Like the, 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 these guys were never fair or honest in their coverage. They were mean when they didn't have to be. They were mean spirited and cruel. They flat out lied at times. So I went after them hard. I have no one, to, I, I don't like get even books. When I read a book where someone's trying to get even with everyone and not be accountable for what they did wrong, I get tired of that very often. But I, I couldn't write this book without singling them out. And I sued Larry Brooks successfully for libel. Like he flat out lied about something and I sued him and recovered a judgment. So to me, I've never felt that it was our job to sit back and take unlimited abuse from people in the media. The vast majority of people in the media work hard. They try to get it right. They mean well. And the coverage is fair. Like overall, the coverage of the Toronto Maple Leafs when I was a gym was fair. When we were terrible, they wrote that we were terrible. When we played a little better, they wrote we played a little better. It's just a few people that mess it up for everybody. And I, I wasn't going to be shy about it in the book. There's no reason they shouldn't get it. They ruined enough of my days. I can ruin a few of theirs. So Simmons has, has written after that you guys actually had a pretty good relationship at one point. Is that, is that accurate? Well, it was a time when we spoke, yes. Okay. What, um, you, you write, and, and I, think, I think there's a, an interesting dichotomy out there. Now you're a member of the press, and before you were part of, man, you were management, that the media in Toronto is not that hard on people. 
is it more a volume that it's just it's constantly surrounding like the game ends you say in the book there's 80 people in front of you as opposed to eight or two is it the volume that that affects players or is it the sheer or is it actually do you think that the media is too hard and now no, you're a media member i don't i don't i didn't think the media was too hard when i was when i ran the leafs even in vancouver i felt again the vast majority 90 percent of them are trying to get it right but each market seems to have one guy that is going to be the smart ass and can't write even a complimentary column without sticking a knife into someone's back somewhere and I resent that. I don't. I, I. I don't. I don't ask that you write glowing things about me, but when you're mean spirited or cruel or say something that's not true, I, I'm going right back at it. So the way we combated it in Vancouver was we had our own radio show. So I was on the Canucks Weekly Update with Dan Russell every Wednesday night for the whole time I was in Vancouver after the first couple of weeks, and we do it even when I was on vacation or Europe in Europe scouting. So it became appointment radio. Like they, they would do 10, CKNW was the station. They would do 10,000 listeners on Monday night, 10,000 on Tuesday night, and then 20,000 on Wednesday night. And serious hockey fans tuned in. Um, I think the answer to the question is, and, and I ask people this all the time, why do you think we have such big dressing rooms in the NHL? It's not for the players. In the practice rink, we actually would like the players to be closer together so you can make eye contact and talk. We would, I'd like to go back to the high school size room we had when I played high school hockey, where we could barely fit together. The reason the dress rooms are so big is because the media come in after practice and after games. So in, in Calgary, after a game, it would be 30 to 40 people from the media, maybe four cameras, five cameras. Toronto, it's 80 to 100 people and maybe 7, 11, 12 cameras. So it's a sheer volume. And when you're losing, and we did a lot of losing during my tenure, when you're losing, they're all picking up a different rock, right? So it's just the volume of negativity. Uh, and again, when you, play, when you play well, this city loves the Leafs, loves the hockey team. They're dying for a successful team. When you play well, the media coverage is fine. But when they have to pick a rock up, so they're 20 throw a rock at me, 20 at Phil Kessel, 20 at Dion Phaneuf, 20 at Ron Wilson. So it becomes overwhelmingly negative for the players when the team's not doing well. And then social media, which, you know, when I started in the business, there was no such thing. I remember the first email I ever sent, I sent from the press box in San Jose when I was working for the NHL. And I thought, this is miracle technology. <laughs> I can communicate without talking on a phone. I can communicate with someone in the office in New York. I was blown away. And so and I remember we went to laptop scouting in Vancouver in 1987 with the modems, you know, like crazy noise and hooking up. Uh, so I've seen the entire evolution of the media from what it used to be, where a newspaper really was important to where it is today and the climate of social media. That all happened during my career. That entire technological revolution happened on my watch. I got my first cell phone on my watch. Uh, my first email, uh, I texting, all the stuff has all happened. And the one detriment that's come from it is social media. As great a tool as that can be for players to market themselves. And, and I have a Twitter account. My daughter, Katie, manages it for me. I, I tell her what to do. It is me speaking. But if I had access to a Twitter account, I'd make too many horrible mistakes late at night. So anyway, 
so the, the social media part of it is really difficult for players to play in Canada, not just in Toronto, in Canada. It was bad in Calgary too. And to the point where we tell players, just get off, stay off Instagram, stay off Twitter, just don't read any of it. Because the meanest people in the world, so no accountability, all reside on the internet. So is that the lesson? Like, is that the challenge you think? Like you, 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 you talk about Francis or Francois Beauchemin having a difficult time in Toronto, whereas other players just kind of shrug it off. Is it just a, a DNA thing where the volume impacts people differently? Yeah. And we, we knew this before I got here. Like we used to talk about this all the time in Vancouver. Can this player play in Canada? Like they need to have real small ears or real thick skin or preferably both because you have one bad game in Canada and there's people on the internet saying they got to trade this guy, especially defensemen. They're really hard on defensemen, especially in Toronto. So we would talk about that. Okay, so Hartford, I loved working in Hartford, but it wasn't a big stage. It was like I, was, I could make my little moves there, make my trades and learn my, my craft. And really out of the spotlight then you go 90 miles east to boston all of a sudden it's a much bigger stage you're gonna get and then you go north to montreal and it's a much bigger stage and then you come west to toronto guess what you're on broadway that's the biggest stage there is and some players couldn't handle it. francois boschman was great for me in anaheim really struggled in toronto went back to anaheim and was great again and it was part partly that he's comfortable in anaheim we won a cup there of course and partly that he couldn't get used to Toronto. And, and I've talked to him about it. He's a great kid. Like, I talked to him about this, like, since he's retired. And the, and the fact of the matter is, he was a stud defenseman in Anaheim, but not for me. It's just too big a stage. And you see it. There's two things to deal with in Toronto. Three things. Number one is, can the player handle a stage? Number two, can he handle a media? Number three, the Toronto effect is a problem. So every team that comes in to play the Leafs, like I remember John Tavares, Toronto kid, when he came in with the Islanders, he's got 30 family and friends in the stands. Guess what? He's going to play his best game out of any 10 games in the season. He's going to play his best game that night. And each team has a minimum of six to eight guys from Ontario and their families come in. And we talked about this as a team. Remember, we're playing a team that's got a bunch of Ontario guys. So when Connor McDavid comes here, you don't think he wants to put on a show? He's from Toronto. So that's the third negative about running the Leafs is you've got the Toronto effect. You go into Boston, a team might have one or two guys from Boston. They go to play the Bruins and they're like, ah, let's get these guys. There's always six to eight, sometimes 10. It's crazy. So how, uh, how's the adjustment been switching teams? You, you went from, and you did it before. You were on TSN, I remember it. But, and you talk about, you have a great story about, I think it was Lou Lamorello who spoke to you when you told him that you were going to join the media. And he basically said, I'm going now. And you basically, and I'm paraphrasing, but I'll let you finish the story. But that, that you know, you've crossed teams. You, you've gone from Darth Vader to uh, the Skywalker, the Skywalker enterprise. Yeah. And I, so my approach to the media is pretty simple. I'm going to continue doing what I've done my entire career, which is say what I think. And that's going to piss people off at times. It's going to offend former friends at times. I don't care. So Good example, Lou Amarillo, the Islanders had a really good playoff run this year, but I don't really like how they play. And I said that on TV. Now, Lou didn't call and say, how dare you? He knows I'm doing my job, which is say what I think. 
and I'm very quick with praise. If I like a deal, I say, I like that deal. But if you're very quick with praise, then you've got to be honest too. And people have to accept the criticism with the praise. Like I never minded when someone said, Brian Burke just made a bad trade. Mike, well, first off, we judge trades with a calendar, not a stopwatch. So we're going to find out. The beauty of pro sports is you find out. <laughs> the truth always comes out at the end of the day. Was it a good trade? Was it not? More, nine times out of ten, it was okay. It was good for both teams. The tenth time, it's a terrible trade or it's a home run. But we're going to find out. In the meantime, I said, look, I don't like this deal. I don't like this deal. I don't think it makes them better. It doesn't make sense to me. Now, if the GM who made that deal calls me and screams, they're going to say, what are you talking about? I don't like it. I'm not picking on you. I think you made a bad deal. We're going to find out. But I will tell you this. If I'm wrong, I will go back on the air and, and, and write that wrong. I will say, look, I criticize this trade, but darn it, it looks pretty good right now. So to that, to that end, Kyle Dubas, Brendan Shanahan have been very busy this offseason. Assuming that they get back on the ice soon-ish and play some sort of meaningful season, are they going to be better? I like the, yes. Short answer, yes. What? I like the, I like the moves they made. I don't think the problem here is, and this isn't Kyle's fault or Brendan's fault. They're both good guys. Like Brendan and I've been friends for twenty five years. I'll tell you a quick story if if I can, if you don't mind, Joan. Is yeah. what my son Brendan thought. Brendan Shanahan was the greatest thing since night baseball. So during the summertime, I'd be in my place in Boston, which was 20 miles southwest of Boston. Shanny would be at his place going down toward Cape Cod, which is about 20 miles southeast of Boston. We would meet at the Braintree Mall. We'd go to, I think it was uh, Charlie's was the name of the restaurant. And we would sit in the booth and Brendan Shanahan would sit across from me and my son, Brendan, and they would talk hockey for half an hour. And then Brendan would go out and wander in the mall and Shannon and I would have a beer and, and a bite to eat. So we go back a long way. I really like Brendan and I really like Kyle. I mean, Kyle marched in the pride parade in honor of my son. He's a good person. He's a good guy. He's very bright. Where we differ is in how you put together a winning team and roster construction, mostly in style of play. So I like it rough. They don't. But I think they have to get to a point where they're somewhere on the spectrum between where they are now and where I am, um, my theory was my skilled players are never going to be afraid ever, ever, ever in their lives. And I think these guys are in a position where they're afraid a lot. So I think they've got to come to a, a middle ground. Now they signed Wayne Simmons, who I love, and he's a gritty player, but the, the perception here in the media is, well, they added Wayne Simmons. I'm like, no, they replaced Kyle Clifford. They didn't get tougher. They just took one tough guy out and put in another tough guy. That's no net gain. They had TJ Brody, who I had in Calgary, love him. And then they've added bottom six forwards, like VC, and, and they added Zach Bogosian on the back end, who's a big guy at a right shot. And I, I like him. So, yes, they'll be better. Here's the problem I think everyone here is like, oh, they're good enough now to get to the Stanley Cup finals. And so, what I do before the season begins, I write all the teams down on paper, depth charts, lines, defense, and then put them next to one another. Are they good enough to beat Tampa Bay? No, <laughs> not a chance. Are they good enough to beat Boston? Maybe without Tory Krug. I think Boston's going to regress a bit this year. Maybe. Are they good enough to beat the Washington Capitals? In my mind, no. So 
And then can they play playoff hockey? Like you look at the finals, look at the conference finals, you're playing long pants hockey by the time you get to the final four. And by the time you get to the final two, Dallas and, and Tampa Bay had over a hundred hits in two of their games, over a hundred hits. And this, they weren't playing on Long Island where you get a hit with your sneeze at a guy. They're playing in the bubble with a legitimate track counting on the hits. So that's, but the answer question is, that's a long answer to a short question. I think they are better. I don't think they're a contender yet. I don't think they can until, as long as I got 40 million tied up in their top four forwards and a flat cap, which will stay flat for five years. You heard it here first, not two. As long as they got that allocation of wealth to four guys, it won't work. So to me, until they can move Nylander for a quality defenseman, they're not going to be a contender. I promise to get you out of there, at, out of here at 12.45, and I'm now one minute late. So I will tell people that uh, despite having a lot more questions, I will say, do yourself a favor, turn off the TV, pick up a book, um, love him or dislike him a lot. There's great stories, and they are told by both Brian and one of the great, I believe, the greatest storytellers there is in Canadian media in, in Stephen Brunt. It's really entertaining. Time flies. It's great. It, it's just good stories. And you can tell, as I said, uh, to me, I judge a person based on a lot of things, but number one to me is where family fits. My grandfather always taught us that you always remember who you are, where you came from and where you're going. And it's apparent to me in the book that those things are high on your list. And I really appreciate you doing this today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Jonah. Thanks, Brian. Everybody else, please stay safe and we'll talk to you next time. Okay. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.